Hiya, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power, um, the blog about international development. Um, started off with the customary links I liked. I always put this up on a Monday morning because I reckon people stumble out of bed, switch on the computer and are looking for something to avoid starting work. So a lot of links, a mixture of funnies and serious stuff seems to go down well. In terms of the funnies, there was somebody had spotted a mug on sale which had welcome to the future, I mean, uh, and said, the future is reduced for a quick sale, which uh, everybody thought was a pretty good description of how we're all feeling at the moment. And then in terms of the more serious stuff, um, Ranil Disayanake, who used to work at, in the British government, but now works for the Centre for Global Development, has done some really good analysis of the state of the UK aid post cuts. Um, and on this one, he and you and Richie have crunched the numbers to look at what is being cut. Um, and, and what they found is that, yeah, you know, logically, the, the FCDO, the, the successor to the Foreign Office and DFID, um, has evaluations of all the work that it's funding. And some of those evaluations are not very good and some of them are very good. So the obvious thing they did was cut the badly performing ones initially but there just weren't enough of them so then now they're slashing high performing programs too but it's just a kind of a piece of basic research which really informs the debate on uk aid which is often characterized by a lot of heat and not much light so i think that's a really useful service there another link in that links i liked was from chimamanda ngozi adichie who gave us a lecture at the university of cape town i haven't found a video of it but uh, there's a summary which looks really good. She talks about theory as a kind of idolatry. And this appealed to me. So she says, we go from theory to life. We start with theory and we try to make life fit our theory. We try to make the messy complicatedness of life fit into the neat and tidy confines of theory. And when life doesn't fit perfectly, we silence those bits that stick out. So that's a plea for complex, deep storytelling, for ethnography, for thinking about the reality of life and not getting blinded by our desire to fit everything into a nice theory, which I think is a very good, um, yeah, a good message. Second post of the week was um, a friend of mine called Pablo Suarez uh, got in touch. Pablo's a kind of maverick genius figure from Argentina uh, who works, uh, the, his current obsession is humour. Um, and he's trying to work out how to use humour to convey difficult messages on climate change. So this is a project he's been involved in with a bunch of cartoonists around the world to illustrate the latest IPCC report on climate change, which was absolutely devastating in terms of the state of the planet and the possibilities for avoiding catastrophic climate change. So uh, Pablo and his co-authors say, more than 200 scientists from 66 countries have worked together to assess knowledge on just the physical science basis of climate change. There'll be other reports coming in the future. Their answers were released yesterday in the sixth assessment report by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Working Group 1. The IPCC's findings are clear, rigorous and very concerning, but they are couched in formal technical language. So a team at the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Centre has boiled them down into seven humanitarian insights accompanied by cartoons. And the cartoons hit you in a way that the text doesn't. It's kind of a double whammy. You can, um, you can feel through the cartoons what the text is trying to evoke. 
I won't try and describe the cartoons. Nothing worse than someone talking you through a cartoon. But uh, do go and look on the blog. I think that work by Pablo is really important. Anything that helps break through the despair and the, oh my gosh, it's all so devastating, there's nothing we can do, um, is really helpful. And I think this work on cartoons is one contribution to that. The third post um, has an unfortunate title given the second post, which is Weathering the Storm. But it's not about climate change. It's about Myanmar. It's called Defending Institutions in Post-Coup Myanmar. And it's by Will Paxton of Kivu International. Um, so Will got in touch and said, look, we've been doing all this work trying to help institutions survive the extraordinary chaos and danger of being a civil society organization or a think tank in Myanmar right now since the coup in February. Um, and so I said, sure, yeah, write something. So this is uh, what he came up with. He says, facing such dramatic change and uncertainty, how should development programs respond? Some things just stop. Donors have called time on direct support to an illegitimate government. So technical assistance to ministries is out. Some support needs to be expanded. Humanitarian needs are high and growing worsened by a vicious wave of Delta variant COVID. But what of governance and civil society programming, which is the thing that Kivu has been involved in? Prior to the coup, my organisation Kivu International ran programmes in Myanmar, supporting research and advocacy organisations. Our work hasn't stopped, but we did completely reorientate away from a focus on policy influencing to a goal of institutional defending. Supporting some of these nascent think tanks to both survive and plan for a longer term future. The best policy brains in Myanmar needed support to adapt so that, if, so that if the dust settles and a new political settlement emerges, civil society is ready in a better position than when Myanmar last started to democratise a decade ago. But what does institutional defending involve? And for Will, five things were key. One, changing partners and approaches fast. Some of our pre-coup partners did not exist after February the 1st. One which had close ties to Aung San Suu Kyi's NLD party closed its doors as staff members fled. In other cases, partners were too close to the military government, making continued work with them undesirable. We switched to a small group with four core partners, which we do not name for security reasons, that appeared to have a decent chance of survival. So you do have to pick the kind of institutions that are acceptable and might survive. Second point, respecting different partners' strategies. One core partner opted to leave Yangon to operate from a neighboring country. They took a decisive anti-military stance and planned to register outside Myanmar and to openly support the democracy movement. Three other core partners have remained in Yangon. Their pragmatic survivalist strategy has been to operate above the radar in post-coup Myanmar. We respected these different judgments. Third, not just survival for survival's sake. One goal has been simple organisational survival, but we have focused on more than this. What is the potential contribution and role? The organisation which has left Myanmar has developed a network of in-country underground researchers who are assessing the coup's economic impacts. The two other partners are providing useful insights for donors or for, who are continuing to work on Myanmar's long-term challenges, including climate change. Fourth insight, thinking short and long term. When the world is changing so fundamentally, short termism is inevitable. Just getting through the next week is tough. 
Nevertheless, trying to make decisions which will work for the long term has been important. A post-coup assessment of future scenarios su suggested the most likely outcome, albeit with large uncertainties, was a military consolidation of power. And this was one reason to support some pragmatic survivalists. And fifth, having supportive, flexible funders. Our funders, such as the International Development Research Centre, IDRC, grasped the merits of institutional defending and they supported a complete reorientation of our work. Their common sense and flexibility mattered on basic issues like how to get money to Myanmar organisations' bank accounts. They were also a source of insight and ideas, having a strong track record in adaptive programming. So that was quite a useful sort of insider view of how do you operate as a as a aid agency working on governance issues in the middle of the chaos of post-coup Myanmar. And then the final post of the week, I had a yeah, confession, I had a gap on the blog. I didn't have anything to go up. So I switched on my RSS feed as I do every morning and I found a very interesting piece from the Centre for Global Development. So I thought, oh, no, I'll just fill, put that up on the blog. I'm sure CGD won't mind. You know, it's all creative commons. Uh, it all gets the message out. So the, the blog is about measuring women's economic empowerment. And it's some takeaways from a meeting of researchers and practitioners written up by um, Myra Buvinich and Megan O'Donnell of CGD. So here's what they say. The rhetoric around women's economic empowerment, we, W-E-E, in global development has finally been translated into action. Development organisations are using this objective to guide operations and exploring ways to measure impact by integrating WE indicators into project results frameworks. This is a quite technical post, but yeah, people tend to like that on From Poverty to Power. I think I have a lot of geeks who read it, and sometimes I'm not even sure I understand some of the stuff that goes up there, but they seem to love it. So this is one of those. Which WE indicators should be used? There's no easy answer to this question. Um, but what they suggest is uh, that women's economic empowerment is intrinsically difficult to measure. We has objective uh, indicators like increased income, but also subjective indicators like improvements in self-confidence and self-belief. Both dimensions need to be captured. So a single indicator in a project results framework is not enough. Further, how we manifest can vary significantly across contexts and cultures, increasing the challenge of identifying common uh, rather than customised WE indicators to apply across projects, sectors, regions, or even organisations. And WE indicators are needed in projects that usually have more than one objective, such as those functions on infrastructure development, agricultural, social protection, and therefore already have many other indicators in their results frameworks. So as a result, Development organisations often face difficulty in choosing and integrating WE indicators, especially those that are both reliable and valid, as well as practical and comparable. So they come up with these um, five insights from the recent meeting, and I'll just read out those and a little bit about each. So first, measuring WE holistically is doable, and it brings substantial project benefits. So one example is a, a, a small NGO in Angola called ADBP operating in rural communities with very high poverty rates. And it showed that WE is feasible and worthwhile for agencies big and small with widely different levels of measurement sophistication. Tablets and statistical software are convenient, but not essential. And there's a nice example of this, of this uh, with ADPP measuring um, 
the impact of uh, 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 monitoring the outcomes of their work with women's pharma clubs. And they, they got local staff to collect results and display in simple graphs so that everybody could see and discuss it. And they learned that they could measure objective and subjective WE outcomes rather than just project inputs and outputs, and that that was led to a really interesting discussion with the women concerned. So women farmers, um, uh, the other thing they found was that thanks to the addition of indicators related to women's satisfaction and self-confidence, they are able to judge project impact independent of the negative impacts of recent economic and environmental shocks. So women farmers are used to experiencing these shocks, but they can still judge what is possible within these restricted circumstances and report feelings of self-confidence and satisfaction even during a bad time. So that's very helpful in terms of the evaluation. Second point, standardizing a core set of WE indicators can help reduce variation in indicators currently in use. So this is quite a technical point, but that you can basically create a, a, a cluster of WE indicators so that the, the, there isn't massive variation, but you can't standardize completely. And it shouldn't be imposed because the complexity of WE as a concept and its variability across contexts and, and cultures means that the difference between a, operational business lines objectives in, on something like road building or social protection operations and client countries preferences calls for flexibility. So you're harmonizing and aligning rather than standardizing. I think that was that was the thing that attracted me to this post. It's got a nice, it walks the line between saying, you know, this is what we've learned, this is best practice, and saying, actually, you have to recognize you need to do different things in different places, and that's fine. Third point, a smart approach is a deliberate approach. Indicators should be grounded in an explicit theory of change. So what you need is an articulate is to articulate an explicit theory of change that identifies the causal links between the project's interventions and its intended outcomes. And then you come up with the indicators to measure whether you're achieving, whether that is correct, whether you're achieving those outcomes. Fourth insight, we indicators should be simple and transparent and guaranteed to yield high quality data. So you need simplicity in the choice of indicator and transparency in communicating it. For example, in the, the government of Angola, led by the Ministry of Social Action and Empowerment of Women and Family, has expressed interest in using ADPP's WE indicators, the one I talked about earlier, across different ministries. And the attraction is the simplicity of these indicators makes their use more feasible and may help fill in large existing gender data gaps in the country. So if you come up with something simple, other people are going to pick it up. Um, and another sort of you know, interesting point is simple solutions are often available to strengthen the reliability and validity of we indic economic indicators. And here's where it gets too technical for me. But one interesting thing they said was avoid indicators based on extended recall periods. If you go around people's houses and say, you know, how much are your savings? How does that compare to a year ago? They won't remember. So you get, you know, it's a case of rubbish in, rubbish out. So you've got to use, um, you know, real reliable information. Recent information is much better than asking people to remember over long periods of time. Final point, collaboration between researchers and practitioners should foster advances in integrate, integrating a core set of WE indicators in project results frameworks. 
and they gave some nice examples of this of where you know researchers and practitioners have worked together so the researchers come up with some ideas the practitioners say this works this doesn't works and then the researchers kind of iterate based on that perfectly sensible very encouraging that it's happening and on that rather geeky note i shall uh knock off for the weekend and hope you have a good time and uh talk to you next week bye <laughs>